It's my pleasure today to welcome back onto the channel Vlad Vexler, social philosopher and popular YouTuber. Our previous two video communications proved to be extremely popular, and so we're risking our luck with a third. Please do check out Vlad's channel on YouTube. It has a collection of the most thought-provoking and insightful videos on the Russian mindset and the roots of the war in Ukraine. And of course, please do also subscribe to the Silicon Curtain channel if you found this video interesting, so you can be notified about more of the content we create and discover the fantastic speakers that we feature. Now, I'm gonna lay out a little menu today of what we're gonna be talking about. Among other things, we're gonna be discussing some of the hottest topics in relation to the war. We're gonna be looking at the causes of the war year on, unconscious Russian imperialism. We're gonna discuss Crimea, empathy. We're gonna look a little bit at the hardline opposition to Putin, because that's been in the headlines recently. And we're gonna to touch upon the Russian liberal opposition as well. So there you go, that's what's on the menu today. Vlad, I'm so grateful that you've agreed to appear for the third time on the channel. It's great to be back. Well, we've got a we've we 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 haven't fixed upon a title for this video. I think that's going to very much emerge after we've sort of looked at the content, the transcripts, and the answers. But let's start with a fairly sort of uh, lowball question, uh, and that is looking at the causes of the war a year on. I mean, we're coming up to the year anniversary. Which, which is absolutely horrific to think that this kind of barbarity, this intensity of slaughter has been going on for a year, but that's where we are. Um, could you pick maybe some of the key moments that have emerged in this uh, sort of 10, 11 months of conflict? Well, I think the um, key moment is the start of the war. And it's right to say that nothing is inevitable. But nevertheless, we have to look at the thinking that led up to um, this war and analyze a little bit. And I think it's possibly helpful to think about two connected directions. One is regime security. You know, what does this war have to do with securing Putin's stay in power? and really secu securing the Russian political system that is sort of um, simply based around Putin's personality now. And then there was a set of partly real, partly quasi-mystical thoughts about engaging in a confrontation with the West by taking a set of provocative and they hoped dizzyingly successful steps, putting the West on the back foot and waiting for that maneuver to accelerate an already ongoing and inevitable decline that Mr. Putin has with a great deal of exaggeration diagnosed us with here in the West. So the regime security bit is that there is a defensive war story here for Putin, which simply goes like this. An independent and democratic Ukraine, forget any alliance memberships, just an independent and democratic Ukraine is an existential threat to him, to me, Mr. Putin, particularly at the time that a moment of instability comes along. 
having a country and a culture relatively close, demonstrating that the modern democratic republic is a viable model in the ex-Soviet space, you know, would be very, very dangerous. And you, the last thing Putin would want is a kind of uh, platform in the form of Ukraine that would potentially tilt the balance of power at a moment of his regime being in crisis. And the image that he associates with this is probably the death of Gaddafi, to some extent the death of Saddam. So the defensive element, the regime security element here is that in Putin's mind, and I don't think this is a game, he at least half believes this and probably more than half, independent Ukraine poses a threat to his regime and his stay in power. It poses a threat to life for him and in some less transparent way poses a threat to Russian civilization that for him sort of incarnates in the will of a single individual, which is him. And then on the external side, this provocation against the West, the aspiration was to quickly overwhelm Ukraine, potentially take Moldova, and then maybe even um, withhold from invading anywhere else because a mass mobilization, let's say on the borders of the Baltic states, Putin felt perhaps may have in of itself created enough uncertainty and instability and paralysis. And so this is much more complex than this sort of double-sided provocation against the West, this pattern of escalation of which Ukraine was just one frontier, and this defensive thinking about how to protect oneself from forthcoming instability and revolution. There's so much more to it than this. Um, um, and there are certainly reasons even that touch upon um, resources and the climate crisis and Western climate policy, which Russia didn't like. So there's no reason to think that even this frame that I've given, um, as broad as it is, covers all that we need. But I think that's roughly the start. And that frame collapsed very, very quickly. And that's obviously, I think, the single most important event of the whole uh, period of the war, when it became clear that Ukraine would hold. And there's two things that made that clear. The Ukrainian state was stable and consolidated enough, um, not just in terms of the military, but just in terms of basic functionality. And anti-colonial sentiment had become sufficiently widespread in Ukraine and sufficiently tied to how many Ukrainians thought of themselves as citizens of a country. So it was a kind of a, um, a civic spiritedness that was, um, you know, a patriotism that had absorbed a clear anti-colonial position. And when you face that, even with military might, eventually you, you're going to fail. And without military might, without overwhelming military might, you're going to fail uh, spectacularly. And I think once it became clear that Putin was in an inept way pushing against this wall, um, 
the West activated. And over time, we've reached a situation where Mr. Putin is isolated himself against an alliance with military resource and financial resource, even if it's being fed in drip form to Ukraine sometimes, that is endlessly um, more extensive than his own. And therefore, um, allowing for the stability of um, Western support for Ukraine, we can now say that some of the worst case scenarios to look forward to in 2023 and 2024 are probably in the realm of a stalemate rather than a defeat for Ukraine. Um, we want more positive news than that, but I think that's, that's what we're at. So that's how I think of the causes of the war. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, if we get beyond, you know, some of the propaganda or the multiplicity of reasons that are given for the war, either on the Russian side or even from those opposing the war um, on the Western side, they grasp at all sorts of cultural reasons, cultural sort of push button topics. Um, but fundamentally, we're looking here at, at uh, something that Putin thought would be over in 10 days, a short-term expediency to shore up his, his regime. It's turned into a brutal, drawn-out struggle. But this week, as you say, you know, we've reached another trigger point. We had um, Patriot batteries uh, and Bradleys and so on promised last week and this week. Earlier in the week, Marders, now apparently Challenger tanks and Leopards, um, you're getting the full might of Western technology and equipment that's coming to bear. Putin must now be seeing this, not just in propagandistic terms, but in reality, as a civilizational clash. It is the full might of Western armor in defense of Western values against whatever it is he's fighting for. He certainly sees it as a civilizational clash, as well as seeing it in other modes too. But his challenge is now to persuade the Russian population that it's a civilizational clash. And he is fearful of not taking drastic steps in that direction, because his population will then fail to mobilize politically. But he's also fearful of taking too many drastic steps in that direction. And that's going to be the interesting dance he is going to produce over the course of this year, which he started with this utterly extraordinary New Year's presentation to the nation that, um, you know, as you know, because you know Russia so well, is in such contrast to previous New Year's addresses. We're normally looking at a glass of champagne. We're looking at... Um, with Yeltsin, we typically had a, a, a more domestic situation with Yeltsin sat at the table. Putin preferred to be outside uh, showing the you know, imperial might of Red Square and so on. But we never had a North Korea-style presentation before. And what's so important from the Russian context is just to emphasize how shocking that is to Russians particularly to urban Russians in big cities who have successfully 
managed to stay out of this story, to stay out of this war psychologically. Um, I would say that while mobilization toward the end of September was a shock to people, this presentation at the new year alone was more shocking than um, any of the casualties we've had so far, any of the Russian casualties they've had so far in the war, because it is such a break in this quasi deal that the Russian people have with their regime, which is that if they stay out of politics, the regime is going to stay away from either coming for them physically or saying that they're now part uh, in a proactive way of some kind of a vast military project. So that was very, very shocking. And it's an indication of how Putin is trying to present the year to the population. He's trying to say, this is going to be a year in which we militarize our society. We're not just going to have a militarized military. We're going to have a militarized society to some extent. And in which we gradually begin to totalize the war. And that means not everyone, but more. And then a few more. And then a few more after that. And then we're going to see. So please get ready for this. But it's a balancing act in which Putin is always trying to uh, take enough steps, but not take too many steps too quickly. I think my take as well on it is that he probably loathes his own people. You know, despite all of these addresses, he probably doesn't think massively highly of, you know, your average guy on the street, if he thinks about them at all. Um, so he must know that if he pushes it further, if he goes for a conspicuous next round of conscription, there's going to be another flood of people heading for the border. I mean, he doesn't trust his people to support his so-called vision for the country or share his ambitions or their willingness to die for him. So he's going to have to take, I would imagine, coercive measures to stop them fleeing that scenario. My position on this for a few months has been that they're going to try and do everything to not close the borders, but their actions are taking them in a direction where they're moving away from being able to do what they'd prefer to do. So the logic is toward border closure, but that doesn't mean we're going to arrive there. What it means is that as we look upon this, it's not wildly implausible to speculate that we might have partial and informal closures of the border to segments of the population closures that are sort of either partly denied or fluffed over in government speak. I think that's what I'd expect. And that's going to reflect the fact that they are simply drifting in that direction, but they also want to avoid it. But the moral statement you made is interesting because one of the most irresponsible political acts you can take, forget about terrorizing Ukrainians, killing Ukrainians, destroying Ukrainian infrastructure, but toward your own people, one of the most irresponsible decisions you can make as a politician, even an authoritarian politician, is send them to a 
spectacularly needless and illogical war as soon as we step out of Putin's own thinking. It's an extraordinary kind of ethical crime to do that that does not compare probably with much else that Putin has done before. It is an extraordinary act of political irresponsibility, even by the standards of a regime that's done ghastly things in Syria, done ghastly things um, East Ukraine, done ghastly things in um, Chechnya. Um, so it's an extraordinary act of irresponsibility. But of course, in Putin's mind, he would still be persuaded that he has the interest of the Russian people somewhere at heart, um, but that their interest isn't the only interest that matters. I mean, Putin undoubtedly still has moments of great sentimentality towards the Russian population, particularly if there are unmet needs um, and meeting them doesn't involve somehow revealing the criminality of the regime or anything like that. Putin can still be moved, then indeed even moved to tears by various problems in the country. But as well as that sort of sentimentality, there is also a kind of almost colonial indifference to the population. And I'm going to uh, quote a man who I don't recommend people to generally trust, Mr. Pugachev, who is a big part of a very, very important and wonderful book on Russia that I think most of our viewers have heard about. But um, Mr. Pugachev once said in an interview with Mitri Gordon, the Ukrainian publicist and interviewer and media guy, um, that he was speaking to Putin after Putin visited some kind of um, part of the country far away. And Putin was so shocked by how there was a crowd rushing toward him. And he wasn't clear what they wanted. And he discovered they wanted to kiss his hand. And, and he said, according to Pugachev, so this is not necessarily true at all. You see, you see what they really want and you talk about democracy. So there is also this kind of element, I think, to the way Putin feels about his own people. And that's not uninteresting to explore because it's not just him. I think in, in a sense, that's the flavor of Russia's political system. He may fear his own people. He may even loathe them. But I think he does understand them, doesn't he, to an extent. He understands them on a kind of atavistic, emotional level. And this is something, and I know that's also been bolstered a lot by, um, you know, endless polls. You know, the Putin regime has been obsessed by running social surveys, polls, to try and gauge where people's sentiment are. They will trial policies and test them out in their propagandistic channels to see whether it's going to fly or, or not. But... This is something that always perplexed me. And this is by no means everybody. This is, you know, I don't want to make a broad generalization, but there were many people when I was living in, in, in Russia who would talk about Vilika Ruska Dusha. So the great sort of broad and wide and deep Russian soul. And yet people 
would not move aside when an ambulance needed to get through traffic. And, you know, I, I can say this, my wife was, was, was born in Russia and she, she said the same thing. You can't square those two things together. You've got this sentimental idea of the great humanity, the, these, you know, emotional, sentimental view of your people. And then you've got the practical behavior of one individual to another. And I think there's a there's 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 quite a disconnect between the two often. I think the this is an expression that has a lot of special features to do with Russian culture and Russian politics of a global pattern that we are rec reckoning with. And that is that many people around the world, and indeed in many societies, it seems that people think of morality as being something that ends when you run out of people who you know in your personal life. And so one of the interesting ways people who do ghastly things justify what they do, I'm not necessarily talking about political leaders, I'm talking about, for example, other kinds of political activities, political violence of, of a terroristic or indeed of a free, freedom fighting kind, very often somebody will feel that they're indeed a very ethically decent person because they have several cousins. There's so many of them, it's hard to count, but they still really care for them. They still provide for them. They still are concerned that they're making an okay living. But when it comes to simply strangers or the needs of strangers or not doing destructive things to strangers, one's ethical response simply runs out of steam. And that's a very, very, very big problem, I think, that I'm afraid is global. And there's an Israeli philosopher called Avishai Margalit, um, who is now in his 80s, and he talks about these relations with people we know as being thick relations and these relations with people who are strangers to us even if they're fellow citizens as being thin relations and i do think that russia has a special crisis has had a special crisis with thin relations for a long time and why that is is a, is, is a very interesting conversation but that says nothing about um the thick relations you know and if we look at russia when you, you were there, um, you could see extraordinary networks of family support, you know, um, cousins, uncles, um, uh, really carrying wide family networks that otherwise may have collapsed um, uh, during the extraordinarily turbulent economic times. But the bit about thin morality has been in... Um, spectacular and astonishing crisis in 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 russia i actually think it's in crisis here for us too but it's so much worse there that it's shocking to us and the last question in this sort of segment gets to the other problem i think which perhaps gets the heart of it so we talked about sort of um ukraine and, and the multiplicity of reasons of why the war might have happened ultimately i think one of the biggest problems and i think this gets back to conception of democracy as a concept. And everyone always focuses, don't they, on democracy is about voting in a leader. 
Whereas the British philosopher uh, Karl Popper at the end of the Second World War pointed out that actually the main feature of democracy is being able to get rid of a leader, whether you like them or whether you don't, whether they were good, bad or different. It's the mechanism of being able to get rid of somebody uh, in a structured fashion. I think that's the real problem. Talking to my my my, my previous uh, podcaster is someone who's one of these criminologists, someone in the U.S. Foreign um, Office, who for decades engaged in criminology. You know who's in power, who's going to take over, what's going to happen next. Um, but he made an interesting point: there was a struct, there was some kind of structure in place. We didn't know how it worked. We didn't know who's going to be the next leader. But there was a transitionary process that didn't involve civil war, that didn't involve some kind of you know outrageous act like invading a foreign country or a complete meltdown of the ruling class. What you've got here is a complete absence of a method to transfer power in a systematic fashion. And the hopeful story, too hopeful a story, is that that makes um authoritarian regimes less stable than democracies i reject that story because it just shows that authoritarian regimes are unstable <laughs> about democracies we need to have a separate conversation um and i think that that negative emphasis is really really important and i'm increasingly a fan of it when we talk we talk to you know, um, ordinary people on the street about how they think about their political system. Um, Avoiding the worst and not just seeing if you can aim for the best and, you know, how that works. I do think that there are two ways of thinking about democracy. One is a very rich one where we are always striving for something. We are operating together with some kind of purpose. We're debating what it is and we're moving towards some destination, um, which is itself contested. And I think that rich sense is always really important. But next to it has got to be a very hard-nosed, practical, almost negative sense about avoiding situations and corners which simply break the democratic game. And one of the skills I think that a modern citizen in the West can learn or be inspired to learn by looking at an extraordinarily failed political situation like the one in Russia, is how to, at a much earlier stage, and Russians had earlier stages, they had missed opportunities too, but they didn't take them. But how for us at an earlier stage here in the West to um, anticipate and avert scenarios where the game might be broken. And there is a tradition in Western thought, um, to an extent, Popper was part of it. There were other thinkers like Judith Schklar or Isaiah Berlin who said, how do we start by thinking about avoiding the worst? We can aim for the best too, but how do we avoid the worst? And what we want to avoid is a situation where we have a collapse of counter-majoritarian mechanisms and institutions and where we are so perilously close, like they're in Hungary now, to being stuck, where you wonder, well, courts are not working, the media is sort of muzzled. Can we really vote these people out? Is it possible? Is it not? 
And that's an extraordinarily dangerous situation. And the reason it's so important to talk about this is that citizens have got to become more alert to what it means to elect politicians, left, right, center, up, down, doesn't matter where they come from, who intentionally or unintentionally are going to bring about this breakage of the game that drifts us closer to a scenario where we press the button, okay, we've had enough of you guys, can we remove you? And nothing happens. Um, the, 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 there's enough consolidation that the folks in power have engaged in such that our levers to remove them are now, are now gone. That's something I think that we need to, in a daily and active way, work on um, averting. And I think Russia and Belarus are extraordinary models about the costs of not doing that. I think that's something that emerged from Brexit, and I'm not going to antagonize my audience here, because actually on the Ukraine issue, I have Republicans, Brexiteers, Remainers, I have quite a mixed audience. And if I say something a little bit, you know, unthoughtful, I will antagonize my audience. So I try to be as accurate as possible. But one of the interesting things that emerged from Brexit, I think, is that despite the extreme political chaos, there were numerous points at which the ruling party you know, huge swathes of its own MPs voted against it. Um, and that, for me, was a positive, that people were prepared to break out of their tribal allegiances um, and almost bite the hand that feeds them. OK, it led to some extreme chaos in, in Parliament prior to you know, the Johnson administration. Um, but for me, that, that seemed to be a healthy, flourishing democracy where you have a tolerance for chaos. You have sort of almost like a chaos but contained within systems and processes which means it doesn't quite spill out onto the streets compare that to russia's duma and i think there was only one mp uh, out of the entire duma that voted against the annexation of crimea uh one out of more than 300 and, and that's where you have a real rubber stamp isn't it you know parliament is no longer in any sense an independent entity and yes, there are cultural differences. And yes, you can't simply transplant the same political system all over the world. But we've got to be aware of two things. Humans are humans. So there are some things that kind of work for all of us. And then we're all sharing a world together. There are some cultural and um, economic conditions that you simply cannot avoid in the modern world. And that also has consequence for how we think of our political systems. And therefore, wherever you are in the world, it's very hard to argue that some element of participatory democracy isn't an essential part of a society that you can justify. I mean, it's just a bad thing to have completely muzzled courts wherever you are in the world. It's just a bad thing for there to be absolutely no way to get a government out, whether you are Russian or Peruvian. It really, really um, doesn't matter. So when we hear stories about how um, there are special cultural reasons for these kind of political systems, um, in the end, while we need to be humble and honest and recognize that not every culture in the world would freely want to accept our full package of Western rights and values. But nevertheless, there are some basic democratic elements that 
actually, if you stopped coercing people and if you gave them a relatively, relatively clear informational environment, um, you'd stand a chance of persuading them off. Um, that's, a, that's not a very optimistic way of putting it, but it, it's certainly to say that at the level of legitimacy, we just, we just can't accept systems like that. That's not to say they aren't going to perpetuate, but at the level of legitimacy, that's not okay. And it's important that where we currently just about have this sort of democratic politics, that we sustain it. And I think that's, that's a really interesting point because I'm not one of those people who thinks that the Russians are incapable of democracy, far from it. As you say, there are periods of nascent or emergent civil society in Russian history. Uh, and it's just through a series of terrible coincidences that they didn't flourish into something else. But I think it's one of the most pernicious and effective strands of Soviet propaganda that has transitioned into the modern day that Russians have been told by their own government, by their own propagandists, that they are culturally, genetically incapable uh, of um, you know, developing democracies, that somehow that is in complete uh, opposition to the so-called Russian character. I think this is a myth that has been perpetuated by leaders that wanted to control and coerce their own people. Unfortunately, a lot of Russians I've spoken to have, have heard this so often, and you know, since birth, um, that it has kind of in, in, in imbued their thinking. Um, but I see no reason why Russia cannot go down that path if certain conditions are met, if certain circumstances come to pass, and if perhaps, you know, a slightly larger percentage of people start to get politically activated. I, I see no reason why that cannot happen at all. It's very tempting to inevitabilize. Um, and I think we often uh, mock football pundits for inevitabilizing. There's a 50-50 match that could have gone any one of seven ways, and it just happened to go one way. And the entire conversation about, is about the catastrophic failure of the team that marginally lost. And we often borrow that approach to history. Um, and yes, it's clear that Russia's democratic opportunities were difficult to take. In 1991, it was a very difficult democratic opportunity to take, probably a bigger one than in 1999. That was also just about there, but, but even, even more challenging. But the democratic opportunity of the 1910s, for me, feels entirely available, just entirely available. And in a chit-chat sort of way, because this, this might sound like a sort of crude generalization, um, I often find that there's something a bit freer about Russians who came of age before the 1917 revolution. We've got tapes of Russians, um, significant Russians, um, uh, and we can listen to them, and there's something different there. And it's very important, therefore, that um, even if there's a very strong cultural trend and cultural pattern, and even though it's true that cultural evolution is slower than political or economic evolution, it's possible. 
Um, and over the course of a century, it's eminently possible. And I think that the, the best way to deal with this problem is to, first of all, take seriously that there are probably 10, if not 20 million Russians who don't think like that. And that's very important. Now, that's a, an unfortunately statistically small bit of the Russian population, but that's still a heck of a lot of people. And then if you, to some extent, um, globalize this conversation to the entire ex-Soviet space, um, the last thing you'd want to do is, is connect Russian and Ukrainian cultures, especially at this time. But one thing you can nevertheless say is that there is a lot in common between that 10 million in Russia and the folks protesting in Belarus and indeed all of Ukraine. So there's, there's, it's possible to chart a kind of a line between those who reject this imperialist authoritarian project and those who are in various ways bought into it. And there's no doubt that this is a conflict that is also happening inside Russia. And the more totalitarian Russia goes, the more it'll be true that that minority of the Russian population will feel that the regime is simply um, at war with them. Not at war in the way it's with Ukraine, but at war in a different way, but in, 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 a, in a frightening way too. And um, that small minority um, should give us the understanding that we, we can't inevitabilize all of this. And I think that's also really helpful for the countries bordering Russia who are fearful for their security. Because there are two ways of thinking about this. Either you want to lock Russia away and say, please make the fence grow really high and then we'll relax. Or you can say, well, look, inevitably we're going to be dependent on what happens inside Russia and as Russia simply disintegrates. And therefore we have a stake in Russia taking one route rather than another. And um, if that's the way you, you think, and that's the way I recommend you to think, then it's particularly harmful to believe that Russians are in, incapable of democracy, a belief that's widespread in Russia, but not completely um, you know, absent in, in the Baltic states and other countries that have, that have been fed up over many decades with Russian imperialism. And that, that leads to two questions. I think we'll come to, I was going to ask about imperial attitudes, both conscious and unconscious, but I think we'll come to that second. The first one is that, you know, transitions to democracy don't happen by accident. We see the sort of headline events, but it's like looking at the iceberg. You don't see all the stuff that actually created the foundations for that. And very often there's been a conscious plan. There's been a series of stepping stones towards that point. You know, whether it was Solidarność in, in Poland, or you, you have almost like the infrastructure and machinery of civil societies created before that. In Maidan, it was the people protesting, coming together to support each other for month after month in the protest. In Beras, we've seen, again, you know, a nascent civil society emerge during those protests that was unfortunately crushed. But you can see the mechanism starting to take place. What concerns me is two things is... One, there's very little thinking in the West about the kind of Russia that should emerge from this. At the moment, it's more like, right, we're going to focus on Ukraine and 
you know, we, we can't even think about Russia right now. Um, the second one is I've now watched probably thousands and thousands of hours of media interviews, et cetera, by, you know, Navalny's team, the opposition, Khartokhovsky and so on. And out of all of that material, much of it is extremely fascinating. Um, it analyzes current events extremely well. Often they're very articulate but I haven't really heard much, if anything, except perhaps Khrodochovsky about what do we actually do? What Russia and what kind of institutions do we actually want to see? And what framework do you have to build to get from here to that idealized version? Again, it seems to be quite romanticized in a way. It seems to be quite abstract. I don't get this sense of, um, you know, the machinery that's going to take the liberals to that uh, new world order, or that new Russian order, rather. Well, let me say a couple of soft things, and then maybe slightly more critical things after. How well the Russian opposition in exile do is in part a matter of how much support they get so my position toward them is always do better rather than you're you're wrong um and that's really difficult because many of these folks are in countries on russia's border where there is not just a strong consciousness of the war but certainly in the baltics for instance there's a consciousness that one is at war and it's very difficult to um understand how to relate to these russians when they the, 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 they are critical of their regime but they've they've come out of a country that we're at war with at wartime and so this also makes it this also makes it difficult because um it's understandable why the russian opposition aren't going to get much love at the moment in many of these places and so that's that's a challenge too the second soft thing to say is that very often a crisis happens, a regime begins to collapse, and um, then leaders emerge. So we can't forget about that historical pattern. Having said this, even in a situation like the 1917 revolution in Russia, where in the end what comes out on top is just a tiny dot that travels across this vast space of various kinds of entities for decades. And that tiny dot comes out on top um, right at the end. But nevertheless, that dot had folks with a program and that program was to a good extent being developed over time. And so to put this in a really sort of facetious way, um, and I've heard others say this too, that Russia is missing a kind of Lenin at the moment, if you abstract Lenin away from his ideas. What Russia is not missing is a beacon of moral clarity in Navalny in prison and in the other political prisoners. And even though he's often criticized for um, supposedly making imperialistic statements, that's a discussion for another time. Khodorkovsky is a kind of a beacon of ownership 
of what's happening as a Russian for Russians. Um, because I think that that's also rather absent at the moment in the, the Russian opposition. Um, because what you need, really, if you're a political agent and you're, you're working toward Russia's future, you don't want to become an honorary Ukrainian um, and just sort of fit in with the Ukrainian media space. You want to be a Russian who takes responsibility in a constructively Russian way for this war with a view to Russia's future. So I think that while it's unfair to say that there aren't ideas, there are ideas. Navalny had an economic program. He had a small manifesto that had policies in it. Um, more recently, he has become more explicit about wanting something more like a parliamentary system in Russia, allaying some but not all of the fears um, that he's a kind of a monopolizer of the opposition who wants everybody to line up behind him. But for all of that progress, I'm missing two things. I am missing a clear vision of where Russia might go, even a clear value-based vision. And this is a huge problem. And incidentally, this is not unconnected with the currently rather superficial assessment that the Russian opposition have of Western societies. And that's very important because you've got to understand to what extent they are, aren't going to be a model for you. And you cannot simply have a sort of textbook quasi um, utopian view of um, you know, how things are going on in the West, which is often what you sort of get from somebody like Latinina, who I, I don't agree with, but I like very, very much, of course, um, stylistically. Um, but that's not okay. You cannot have such a superficial view of Western societies if you're gonna build a, a, even a value-based vision of where Russia is going. So that needs much, much, much more work. And the second thing that needs more work is a capacity to engage different kinds of Russians in the conversation. And you're just not going to do that if you simply take a pro-Ukrainian anti-war position. You have to say, well, what are the different demographics in Russia? They're hard to reach, but why don't we try? And how are we going to do it? And there must be different ways in which to do this. And so different elements of the opposition spectrum might do this in different ways. And so that needs to be an important exploration. Uh, you don't want to engage in a, and this is not true of most, but it's true of some and a bit true of most. Um, you don't want to engage in a competition about how anti-Putin you are. I am so terribly anti-Putin and I'm even more anti-Putin than you even though you're very anti-Putin, but I'm going to go one step further and they're going further than me, so I'm going to outcompete them. So that's, that's a risk. And you've got to say, look, it's only been a few months and this is risk, risks going on for a long time. So they have the possibility to, to improve and some of them are doing a very good job, but collectively it, it needs a lot. It needs a lot more progress and I am not seeing enough of a vision for the country. I'm not seeing enough of a vision for the Russian opposition itself. Um, 
and I am not seeing enough of a strategic vision for how Russia relates to Europe, how Europe relates to Russia, and where the world is going. Um, it's not enough to say that Ukraine is fighting a just defensive war and that your regime is uh, a bunch of uh, sort of mythologically infused criminal gangsters. Um, so at the moment, I would like more, but they can give it. We just need to see if they will. And as much as I revile the Bolsheviks, um, they had a very catchy slogan. Now, my day job is marketing, so I can kind of appreciate the simplicity of this. Peace, bread, land. You know, it's a, they, they didn't deliver, but uh, they delivered endless war and no bread, and, well, they, they spoiled all the land. Um, but it's a very simple message, and it's a clear vision, economic, moral, whatever. It's a clear vision people can latch onto. And what I find fascinating in what you've said is this absence of an idea is not only inherent in the opposition, the broad absence of an idea is also something you can characterize the Putin regime with. They might throw up a million different ideas before breakfast and then move on to the next one, but it actually all this sort of stuff talks to a vacuum at the heart of Putin's regime. It has no real reason to exist, no real hope, except perhaps looking backwards towards an imagined past. Well, let me just, first of all, say that the, the critical things I've said about the Russian opposition are still an expression of moral support, even if it's in agreement or disagreement, because I think that's important. We've got, we've got to recognize that, you know, support and a do-better attitude is very much not just right, but also in the strategic interests of the West. But I, I think that the Russian opposition are geniuses of vision compared to the compared to the Putin regime. Um, because at least you can see that um, most of them want Russia to follow some kind of model of Western societies. Um, but even in cartoonish forms, you can't clearly state what the Putin regime is about. Now, being full of ideas doesn't make you a good political actor. So it's possible that they could have been even worse if they had more ideas. That's not necessarily, you know, that's, you know, just because Trotsky was interested in psychoanalysis and in Nietzsche, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't make uh, Trotsky's ideas correct uh, for implementation. Um, and of course, the same goes for Lenin, who, whatever you think of him, was a really robust political theorist. Um, but these folks are rather sort of immune from coherent ideas. And I think partly that's to do with how the more ideologically elaborate and mystical aspects of the Putin regime and of Putin's own thinking came about. I think that there's an element of these ideas being half believed in, partly added as sort of 
postmodernist elements of political technology. And then over time, these ideas began to persuade some of the people who came up with them. I do think that there is this absolutely uh, uh, comical trend whereby um, so many people who invented Russian propaganda without believing it now ended up believing in the thing that the fiction they invented. I think some of that is also true about Putin's myths, that Putin increasingly takes seriously um, a salad of different kinds of thoughts about which he would have been much more ironic. And that's what I, in the past, that's what I call this kind of civilizational turn that Putin took that was absolutely part of his return to power after Medvedev and was part of this evolution in him of a, of a certain kind of a sense of, of mission, of a certain kind of civilizational um, uh, uh, restoration. And restoration is very much the, the point here. It's not that um, he wanted to uh, uh, simply make great civilizational accomplishment. He wanted to restore something that was very unjustly lost or very unjustly taken away. And his level of irony about this just kept diminishing over time. Um, and partly that's because that was convenient for him. You know, people, people often end up sincerely believing things that are convenient for them to believe. That's a very important political track for people who stay in power for a very long time. So it, it, it's spectacularly devoid of ideas. And I think that also is reflected in Putin's own personality. He's not a systematic reader. Um, he operates with some quotes from Eileen or from various other kind of more pop or less pop Russian thinkers. Um, doesn't read anything serious systematically. In my assessment, we could find that I'm wrong when we know more. Um, and as a result, this is a kind of ill-assorted, um, you know, salad of different things that um, don't really hang together much intellectually. But uh, he is now sufficiently uh, persuaded that they that they make sense and that it's worth staking uh, his own legacy and, unfortunately. Um, the lives of Russians and Ukrainians and lots of other people around on, on these on these um, ideas that are ideas, but they they lack substance, they lack they lack uh, coherence. Um, and when it comes to those ideas that are about um, Western identity politics and political correctness in the West even though we are having culture wars about this here, it's very important that whatever view you take of those, Putin is simply using this. In other words, I do not believe that the part, there's plenty of imperial nonsense he believes, but the part of the story about gay folks, about trans, transgender folks, all of that is, that is pure political technology. I don't think Putin is serious about that. Yeah, I think it's marginal. I don't think he really cares. And there's a great Russian word to describe these sort of pseudo-philosophical scraps that they've pulled together. It's like a farce, which means like just a mince, uh, mincemeat of, of, of stuff. And one of the most, I'm going to say hilarious, it's not hilarious, of course, it's quite sick, but the way the Western media latched onto Dugin and called him 
Putin's brain, which was ludicrous because Putin, I don't think, really quoted too much from him and he's a fairly marginal figure. Um, it struck me that he's far more like Putin's colon. He's taking these scraps of indigestible stuff that doesn't really kind of hang together. And he's kind of mincing it all together in a kind of burger patty of philosophy. I think in a nutshell, Dugin is trying to identify a quite complete kind of opposition of um, between Eurasian ideas and European culture that is simply unavailable even in a genealogical way. Once you look at where Dugin's ideas come from, they are far more European than um, is compatible with the kind of project he has. So in a certain sense, the materials out of which he built his own house um, speak, against, speak against him. So um, that's to say that Yes, Putin's ideas about this are incoherent, but it's not that there's a coherent version out there which some intellectuals have in their heads and the Russian state hasn't implemented. I don't believe that. Um, in other words, I believe that trying to carve out a Eurasian vision for Russia's development is, is really like a dog running away from its tail, chasing itself. It's not, there's, there's no such thing there because you're simply going to end up trying to rebuild Russia out of European cultural resources. Um, and there's not quite any way of getting out of that, in my view. There's two more topics we want to touch on. I know we're sort of coming towards, towards the end uh, of the recording. And whenever this goes out, for everybody who's watching, it's kind of late at night. And, uh, you know, we're, we're thinking of our cocoa, I think, already, cocoa and slippers. Um, but there's two things I want to touch on. One is empathy, because there's a survey that's come out, which many people have latched onto it and said, oh, this is shocking. This is terrible. And it, it, it's fairly consistent. And I actually had a slightly different interpretation of it. But it basically says that 34% of the people polled, and I think it was done mainly in, in, in larger urban centers, 34% of the people polled in Russia feel some kind of contrition, some kind of guilt for the war. And this has gone around on social media and it's been positioned as that's shockingly low. I actually think that that is a cause perhaps for optimism. I think 34% of people who are actually accepting individual blame for what their collective society is doing, I think that's quite a high number and, and, and perhaps gives some uh, causes for hope. So I'm more pessimistic. Um, <laughs> I I do think that thirty four percent would be an extraordinarily high number if that was the number of people who, in a partly totalitarian society, were able to say about their government, "This is wrong. This is unacceptable. You're killing innocent people in a neighboring country, and we take responsibility for it." I think that polls are very difficult to conduct and to analyze in Russia at the moment. And the tendency for us here is to think that because we're in a democracy, that polls elsewhere are going to work in a similar way. And that doesn't mean that polls are completely useless, but it means that you've got to think of them 
in a way that is so delicate that it might require almost a kind of a professionalized understanding of them before you can read them. Um, and even with my academic experience in politics and even in political science, I can't interpret Russian polls at the moment. I just can't. What we know is that um, response rates are regularly low. What we know is that polls are often a feedback mechanism for people to say critical things about the government that can't be said by other means. But what we also know, and this pulls in the very opposite direction of this last point, is that when people answer polls, they try to comply with what the majority thinks the majority thinks, which is often not what the majority thinks. And that's how support for Putin often gets exaggerated, this perception that your neighbor definitely 100% supports Putin when they might not. And there is a there's a sociological fact, I think, that most people observe, and that's that there's a tendency to simply associate pollsters with the state in Russia. And that creates another distortion in the answers because you think the state that is now partly a terror state is asking you whether you like it. And that means that polls are something that, that has an ethical question mark over it because it can be a sort of mild form of terror. Um, in the experience of people being asked. And so once we've listed these factors and all the other factors, it becomes such, and then the, the actual production of the, the poll and some of the constructions and assumptions that went into, by the time we've analyzed all of that, and I'm not making a claim about this particular poll, but by the time we've analyzed that, I would not be surprised if... Um, that idea that 34% of Russians feel really bad about what's happening in Ukraine dissolves. My own guess is that that number would be closer to 10%. But that's just a guess um, because I'm, I, I run out of steam, run out of capacity to, to assess polls. So I invite a general skepticism um, about overreacting to either promising or disappointing polls coming out of Russia today. And unfortunately, it's probably likely that around 10% feel that Putin's war is not going far, far enough. So you also have a fairly, uh, you know, we're talking about expressing an idea, an idea in which you passionately believe and has some kind of coherency to it. The only other group in society that have a coherent idea which rather than in a sort of postmodern sense, you're just sort of, you know, throwing up there, is the extreme nationalist far right, many of whom now have telegram channels, whether they are partly or fully supported by the government. You do have a vocal um, constituency of extreme nationalist views. Again, it's a small minority, but it's rather a scary one because Russia's future could just as easily be ultra-nationalist as liberal, I feel, at this point. There is a risk of, indeed, even a quite anarchic collapse over the, over the years to come. I'm not saying that's likely, but that's a possibility too, because Mr. Putin is dismantling the state that he himself built. We can be very critical of it, but he is dismantling some of the things that he himself put in place. He's now given away monopoly over organized violence on an entirely new scale. Um, so 
this is going to be turbulent and it's going to be unpredictable and there's going to be a wave i believe in 2023 of not just uh uh actively pro-war folks but pro-successful war folks who say that mr putin is giving us a war but isn't giving us a successful war and putin's response to this is going to be to explore how he can partly accommodate that position and he can partly accommodate it by if you like totalizing the society's response to the war and mobilizing more people but there's no doubt that insofar as there's any really sort of agency-wise palpable opposition in Russia in 2023, it's going to be the hardline opposition that says that Mr. Putin is weak, feeble, isn't completing the job, isn't giving us a victory. We want victory. We don't just want war. And that's going to launch Putin deeper into his sort of turbulent triangulation between authoritarianism and totalitarianism and it's certainly going to further destabilize his position and some of the actors involved like mr prigozhin for example aren't even themselves certain of what their role is going to be a year or two from it's a very very uncertain situation and people are trying to plan for a future where they cover their butts from the point of view of different scenarios. Um, so this is going to be something that we see. And one of the question marks is going to be, what will Putin try to do in terms of activating the Russian population in response, politically mobilizing them more? And how well will they respond? Um, we're going to have to see this. And unfortunately, I think 2014 shows that a leader that can deliver military victories, especially one like Crimea, which came at a, you know, almost bloodless, um, but a leader that can deliver victory is not going to have too many people lining up to criticise them. And I think that is one of the problems here of the sort of incipient desire for greatness, for status, for becoming what many uh, in Russia feel is this sort of lost period um, of others from the outside would see it as the Soviet empire. Uh, many would see it differently, but th there is this certainly this incipient desire to be a large power that is feared. And it's baked into many people's way of thinking, unconscious or consciously. You know, over the years, historically, um, the passive majority of the Russian population has been an obstacle to the liberal opposition making progress. As far as this kind of hardline opposition goes, that passive demographic is a buffer. And it's an interesting sociological question, historical question too, how that conversion works. Can you take that depoliticized blob of the population that probably amounts to 50-60% of Russian citizens and begin to activate them uh, in 
to this sort of militarized um, fantasy. We don't know, but certainly it seems to me that um, history teaches us that's not impossible, um, that, that it is possible to see a, a passive population becoming activated, particularly um, if there are certain unforeseen and extraordinary uh, events that happen as part of the war. Um, so we need to see this. But un until we see it, that passive majority is a block um, that will make the radicals tap out in terms of their support uh, among Russian citizens at 20%, let's say. Not, not perhaps quite enough to uh, to trigger popular uprising. Uh, I don't know the figures in in uh, in Ukraine, but I think it was around sort of twenty five percent or so, twenty five to thirty percent of the population really sort of activated to have some form of participation, say in in uh, Euromaidan. But I'd love to sort of speak to some people who are on the ground and can give facts and figures on that. Now, this is going to be the last question, I promise, and it's going to be a short one. Crimea. Would the loss of Crimea, uh, and I know militarily there are all sorts of obstacles as to why that's going to be tough, but would Ukraine taking back Crimea be game over for Putin's time in office? I think Ukraine being in the process of taking Crimea might not be game over for Putin. It might be an opportunity for Putin to fail or succeed at telling Russian society that it's total wartime in the sense of you guys are going to be involved in this now, all of you. Um, and if Ukraine successfully takes Crimea, putting aside all the military considerations, it's nearly impossible to imagine Putin's position as being anything other than extravagantly precarious. Um, if I were Putin and you told me that I'm going to lose Crimea, my expectation would be that I would lose power with that. Yeah, if if that was the process, then I imagine you'd have the uh, you'd have the plane on the runway ready to go to Argentina or North Korea or wherever, wouldn't you? That 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 sort of a. a, a escape uh, plan I think is far-fetched. I would expect Mr. Putin to die on Russian soil, all things being equal. It's not a situation we can predict, but um, he may well face being removed to some kind of dacha um, or, or to one of his villas. Um, Unless, of course, there's some kind of a democratic revolution in Russia, in which case he'll be held legally responsible. Um, but losing Crimea is not incompatible with Putin staying in power because history is extraordinary. But my expectation would be that we shouldn't see the two together. Mm -hmm. No Crimea, no Putin is a, is a fair default expectation. Well, Vlad, I know this has been a long and an absolutely thrilling conversation, and I know it's already sort of late at night. Um, and I want to give you a huge thank you, and I know the audience will do as well, for sharing your sort of thoughts of insight. And anyone who hasn't checked out your channel, I absolutely recommend them to go straight over and uh, watch your incredible materials. 
Thank you so much for having me, John.